All right. So 242 Church is the name of a teaching ministry that we have here at the church, and it's based on Acts 242, where one of the things the early church did was they met together and they studied Scripture together. So we've taught different courses over the years on Bible interpretation and theology and ethics and apologetics and all that kind of stuff. But every once in a while, I like to do something extremely practical. And I'm going to tell you why I've chosen to teach this uh, two-week course um, momentarily. But I want to start by just... Uh, outlining for you so that you can kind of go back in time and think about your own life as a teenager. Some of the things I remember wrestling with and struggling with when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Okay, those teen years. These are just some things that I remember thinking about. And I have a suspicion that probably all of you will individually be able to relate to at least like 80% of them. Okay, so this is just, let's take, let's do a little trip back in time and This will help us, I hope, to put ourselves in the shoes of the kids and the teens that we are raising. So I acknowledge that some of you don't have teenagers yet, but you will soon. I acknowledge that others of you have teenagers or you're well on your way to perhaps even becoming grandparents. And you might want to pass on some of this information to your kids or uh, to use some of this information as you're sort of helping in a secondary role to influence the lives of your grandchildren. So here are some of the things that I used to think about. And uh, the first one is, and these are no particular order, but when do I become a man? So you're a boy, then you're a teenager. Some cultures have rites of passage where there's specific things that take place before you transition into manhood. I never really knew when that was supposed to take place. I never had a dad at home from the age of 10 onward, so I wasn't quite sure even who was supposed to tell me, hey Aaron, you're a man now, you need to start acting like a man. You, you have the rights and privileges of, of a man. So that was a question that I remember thinking a lot about. Another question that I thought a lot about is, what is my role in the home? So I don't know what your family of origin is, but my family of origin is mom and dad get married in 1968, kid number one arrives in 1970, Kid number two, that's me, arrives in 73. In between there, my parents were exposed to the gospel, made professions of faith in Jesus Christ. So then there were four more kids born after me. But when I was 10 in 1983, my parents split. And so from the age of 10 onward, I was the oldest son in a single home with my mom, squished between two sisters and then three boys after that. And it's confusing to try to figure out what your role is supposed to be in that kind of an environment. Um, I've told some of you this before who know me and know my story. One of the things I appreciate about my mom is that she always encouraged me to take responsibility early on. But one of the things I realized was detrimental in that was I felt a weight of responsibility and stress and anxiety to almost like be a dad to my siblings starting from the age of 11. How competent is any 11-year-old to be a father to his siblings, like nobody is. And so I realized later that was both a plus because it pushed me toward being responsible, but it was a negative because I was ill-equipped to do that. And it caused a huge deal of stress and anxiety in my life for many, many years. So what's my role in the home? Many of your kids are thinking about that, whether you're a single parent or you have a dual parent situation. Many of your kids are trying to figure out in the recesses of their, their mind, what is my role? I'm not, I'm not a little kid anymore. Maybe if they have siblings that are younger or older, it's especially troublesome to try to figure out what, what is my role in the home. 
Another question would be, what is my relationship supposed to look like with each parent? So moms and dads are different, and that's awesome. God created the, re- the family that way. But the way a male child relates to his father is different than he relates to his mother. The, the way a female child relates to her mother is different than the way she relates to her father. And then they're both together in the same room. There's a different dynamic yet. And a lot of kids, I think, are actually struggling with understanding, how, how am I supposed to treat mom versus dad, dad versus mom, knowing that they're different personalities, they have different roles in the home? How do I get along with my siblings? I remember in our home, we solved our issues with flying plates and fists and broken chairs and yelling and the police being called. And that is not the way I wanted to raise my kids, but uh, in, in the absence of having a father and any clear direction, that's how we did it. And uh, always a challenge. Am I responsible for my siblings? This is a, a burden that many older kids feel for their younger siblings if the parents have split up or if the parents are absent or the parents are ill. Uh, these are challenges. Why is sexuality so hard? You know what it's like. You're all adults. You go from being a kid that's not thinking about issues of sexuality, all of a sudden the hormones strike. And all sorts of things start to happen to your body, and it's confusing, and you have all these desires. You're not sure if they're good desires or shameful desires. And if people don't guide you and direct you, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble, a lot of sin, and um, a lot of lifelong challenges. How do I court a girl? Uh, I remember when I liked my first girl in grade one. But um, as I got older and started to get more romantically interested in girls, I was like, how does this even work? I felt incompetent. Like, how do, how do you approach a girl? How do you ask a girl out? What should you say to a girl? What shouldn't you say to a girl? And you make a lot of mistakes along the way, but um, one of the things I've tried to do with my kids is guide them through some of those questions instead of just letting them figure it out for themselves. My body is changing. Is it weird? Uh, I remember being like, 10 and having all this leg hair, but having like no armpit hair till I was like 16. And I felt like, why do I have all this leg hair, but no armpit hair? And you go to the beach and you keep your arms down and you didn't want to like <laughs> let your friends know. And to make it worse, I went to a Catholic school and 90% of the boys were Portuguese. <laughs> and so you'd go into gym class and they'd pull their shirts off in grade nine and they're just like covered with hair, right? <laughs> And so these are questions and um, sometimes embarrassing situations that teenagers find themselves in. What will I do for a job? What's life going to look like after high school? How am I perceived by people? Am I liked? Am I tolerated? Am I disliked? If I'm being bullied, is it because the person's just an idiot or is there something wrong with me? You know, these are questions that go through young people's minds. Matters of faith. Is Christianity real? I think it's real. Is it real? I've been told it's real. Is it real? I don't want to give my life to something that's false. So you think through questions of the authenticity of your faith. And then I remember coming into a phase in my life where I started thinking a lot about the genuineness of my parents' faith. My dad left us. Is he really a believer? Is he not a believer? I'm not really sure. He hasn't really told me. Um, Is my mom's faith genuine? Is my mom's faith real? Should I be emulating that? Should I be backing away from that? In the case of a broken home, why did the family break up? I I never knew. My parents never fought. (laughs) I never understood why my parents broke up. Still not clear to me totally to this day. But at the time, it was a confusing thing for me. Our, Our family went through all kinds of challenges, and I didn't really know what the reason was. 
And so as I got older, I started getting kind of afraid of the prospect of being married because I didn't know what it was that brought marriages down, even though I'd come out of a relationship where the marriage had broken down. I didn't know what not to look for, what to look for. I didn't know what the signs were of an unhealthy marriage. And that was a point of confusion for me right up to the time of my own marriage. Uh, how about education? Uh, educational stress. Sometimes you're under the stress of writing exams or having a lot of work. I think my dominant feeling in high school was boredom. I didn't like high school. I didn't want to be in high school. I, I really didn't like any course except for like shop and visual arts. And even in visual arts, especially as you get into your grade 12 and 13 years and you get exposed to all sorts of weird perspectives. I'm not even sure I like that a whole lot. So education, there's, there's stress, there's boredom. For some, there's excitement. Uh, how do I avoid bad influences? I was a Christian. I was saved young. Maybe wasn't super mature, but was definitely saved. And I didn't want my faith to be ripped apart by my classmates, my teachers. And so I remember thinking a lot about how do I insulate myself from the world? Should I be friends with unbelievers? If I should be, what should that look like? What do I do when the non-Christian girl starts moving my direction? These kinds of questions of how, how do I grow in my faith when I'm in high school? All of these things, and I'm sure there are many more, are questions that I had when I was a teenager. Can any of you relate? Now we're adults, right? Most of us are adults. There's a baby at the back. And... I'm 45 years old. I've, I've been an adult now for most of my life. And we can easily start to forget what life was like way back in those teeny bopper days. But now we have kids, or soon we'll have kids that are in that age bracket. And the question is, how can we help to guide them and give them the tools that they need to kind of get through those challenging years? And not just get through them, but also flourish and live for Christ during those years. So why this course? The reason why I thought this course would be helpful is um, primarily because I've noticed people sort of ask me a lot of questions. Primarily. And I've always been one to believe that if people start asking you questions, you start hearing the same thing over and over again, maybe God is saying, hey, you should do something like this. So as my kids have gotten older, I've just noticed more and more people are kind of like looking to me and saying, well, what did you do? Like, how, how, what are some of the things you did to raise your kids? And I'm thinking, I, I remember doing that when we were kind of starting into the teen years, looking at some people that were in our church at the time, they've since moved away, and kind of asking them questions like, what are you guys doing? Or just watching how they shape their family dynamics. So the primary reason why I decided to do this is because people started asking me, so what I want to do is I want to try to help equip you to disciple your teenagers through to adulthood. And we're going to then talk about several things. Uh, when to disciple them by speaking to them. What is the role of words in discipling and building up teenagers? What role does role modeling play? What are some activities, some actions you should be putting into practice in order to help your children grow? How should we pray for our kids? Here's a big one. How do you discipline a teenager? I think disciplining kids, little kids is actually pretty easy. But disciplining teenagers becomes a little more complex. 
So we'll talk a little bit about that. What is the role of the church? So you know the old proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. What's the role of the church? And am I taking full advantage of the church to help me raise my teenagers? How do I deal with extra difficult children? We'll talk a little bit about that. Some of you may have some questions about that. And then I want to encourage you, so this is under the heading of why this course, I want to encourage you to to take full responsibility and to be highly proactive as a parent. I'm just going to give you a little observation. I have noticed that many, many, many Christians are very comfortable taking some measure of responsibility for their own spiritual growth. Some of them even try to take some responsibility for their own salvation. But many are are, are taking responsibility for their own spiritual growth. They're reading scripture. They're trying to avoid sin. They're confessing sin. They're in a small group. They understand that while God is sovereign over our lives, there's a personal responsibility on each of us to grow in our walk with the Lord. However, when it comes to parenting, I would say more Christians than not tend to say things to me like, well, it's just whatever God has in store. They, they, they throw it on God. I got this difficult kid, well, I guess it's, it's God's will. I'm just going to throw it on God. Now, I'm, a, I'm big into the sovereignty of God. But I'm also big into human responsibility. And human responsibility is something that we all need to take to heart when it comes to following God's word and raising kids. So we are largely responsible. Okay, I believe in the sovereignty of God. But the way your kid grows up, the way your kid thinks, the way your kid acts is largely a reflection of what you have done or not have not done. I'm not saying that to shame or condemn. I'm, sh- I'm saying that to encourage you to be incredibly proactive in your parenting. Don't do the whole let go and let God thing. Don't do the whole, I'm just going to pray for them but not say anything thing. Be as proactive as you can possibly be as a parent, and I believe God will bless that. There are certain things that he wants you to do as a mother or father to maximize your children's spiritual development. Why me? Why am I teaching this course? Let me just give you a few things that I think um, might be helpful for you to hear. Uh, First of all, I used to be a teenager, as did you. And um, the fact that I've been there, done that, allows me to be able to speak with some measure of intelligence into the lives of other parents and other teenagers. Secondly, I spent eight years as a youth pastor, eight and a half actually, in two different churches. So I, I ministered to middle schoolers, high schoolers, and college students in two different churches, both in Windsor and in St. Thomas. And so I spent a lot of time working with young people, teaching them every week, uh, leading small groups, taking them on mission trips, counseling them, and so forth and so on. Third, as I've already mentioned, I, I've had five teens of my own, boys and girls, with very different personalities. And so I've been able to learn a lot. And um, finally, Susie alluded to this on Sunday, although I never even asked her to. Pastorally, I am pro-parent and I am pro-teen. 
I am pro-parent and I am pro-teen. I'm not just here to help you along to be a better parent. I hope that by helping you, I'll be of some help to your kids because I have a huge heart for the young people in our church. I love them dearly. And I want to see them. I want to see that next generation grow up to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm hoping that by being a blessing to you, that I can be a blessing to our young people as well. And that um, uh, the church and Jesus Christ will be enriched as a result. All right? So that's all the background information. Let's just get into some practical stuff. Here's how I want to frame this up. Tonight I want to talk about values. What are some of the key values that I think every Christian parent has to embrace if they're going to be successful raising their kids for Christ? Next week, what I want to do is kind of just go back and take the probably three-year-old up to 18 or 19-year-old age groups and just divide them into sections and talk a little bit about, okay, here's some things that I think you should do in this age category. Here's some things I think you should do in this age category. Here's some things I think you should do in this age category. And here's some things I think you should do in this age category. So we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the, the three to five window and then the elementary years and the middle school years and the high school years. We'll just talk a little bit about that. And I think I'm even going to touch on some of the things I'm, I'm starting to learn and think about as I become the father of adult children, which is like super weird, by the way. It's just super weird. But some things I'm learning um, as I'm moving into to those years. But tonight, I want to really talk about values, 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 values. So I'm going to suggest to you that ground zero of Christian parenting really boils down to what your values are. When we started this church 17 years ago, one of the things that I, I noticed as a result of my, my past church experiences is that most churches have a, a, a just a, most churches tend to have a pretty good doctrinal statement that they've posted. They're, they're pretty firm on what they believe about God and Jesus and salvation and all that, even if they're wrong. They have a, a doctrinal <laughs> statement. But they don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about how do you create a certain culture in a church? How do you bring unity of mind and spirit in terms of methodology and culture and environment and priorities and all that kind of stuff? So one of the things that we did early on is we created something called core values. And we started off with seven of them and then we whittled them down to I think four or five. And you know, we've reworded them over the years. We have four now. We call them our four pillars or our four vertical values. But the point is, what those things do is they're not in addition to Scripture, but they kind of declare out loud, what are the things that are really, really, really important to us that we want to see reflected in our ministry strategy? And, you know, we talk about them, unapologetic preaching. So you should never come to church and say, wow, I can't believe they're preaching from the Bible, right? Or unashamed adoration. Wow, people are not actually afraid here to worship, right? So when you have values, they should be reflected in, in how you practice, and likewise, I think successful parents have clearly defined in their minds what their parenting values are. And unsuccessful parents often flounder because they don't actually know what their parenting values are. They may have a doctrinal statement in their head of what they hope their kids believe when they become adults, but they've never really thought through values. Now, your values don't need to be exactly the same as mine. I mean, you can adapt these to your um, your own purposes, but 
I want to share what some values that that I have found to be super helpful in um, raising my kids. But before we do that, I want to do a little exercise with you. So, um, does anybody here forbid their female children from wearing pants? Anybody? Okay, good. So we can just use the generic stick man, okay, which represents both a man and a woman. Okay, so. This is your child. Okay, this is your child at, we're just going to pick an age. You can apply this to any age category. This is your child today at age 13. This is your child at 20. The question I want you to be thinking about is what is your mental image? What is your preferred future? For your 13-year-old. When your 13-year-old gets to this stage, what, what do you hope that person will be like? So I want to give you a couple minutes to jot down some words, make them all like adjectives, use descriptive words. What are some things that immediately come to your mind? Even if you're like, I don't really want to write this down, I'm realizing in the exercise that it's probably not a great word. Be honest with yourself. What would you say are your dreams your preferred future. This is your preferred future for your child. And I'm doing this because I want to kind of challenge you to think clearly about where you want to go as a parent. Thinking past tomorrow. Thinking past this term in school. Thinking past this challenging year. What do you hope your 20-year-old's going to look like and act like? Now, as you think about that, and we've done this exercise, by the way, in our church. We've um, done this with our staff where we draw a stick figure. We're like, okay, what is the typical harvestite like? And we start to throw down a bunch of adjectives, and it helps us to get a feel for the kind of people that actually typify our church. And then we ask ourselves questions like, is that what we want? Like, are we on track or are we missing anything? So as you think about this, you may already be, because your believer is thinking, you know what, I'm not sure I know. I'm not sure I'm really thinking a whole lot about what I want my kid to be like at the age of 20. Or I'm starting to realize I'm jotting those adjectives. There's not a lot of like Christian words in the list. I want them to be rich. I want him to be super good looking. <laughs> I want him to be gone. Um, what is your preferred future for your child? What is your mental image of the kind of adult child you want? Is it clear in your mind? Now, just kind of set that aside and let me run through a whole list of what I would just call dominant parenting values. Dominant parenting values. These are things that I have observed in our church and in other churches I've been in that tend to typify... Hey, Nagum. That tend to typify uh, how parents raise their kids. I'll just jot them down here for you. These are in no particular order. But one of them might be true of you. 
In fact, I hope one of them is true of you. The first parenting style I've noticed is the textbook parent. The textbook parent is the parent that reads every book they can possibly get their hand on, hands on, on how to raise kids, and then seeks to run every play. Maybe that's you. I don't know. I'm not sure I've ever read a parenting book since I graduated from Bible college or I was forced to read a few. Now, I'm not opposed to reading parenting books, but one of the problems with reading a lot of other people's materials, especially if you're not naturally introspective, is you lose out on developing in the area of wisdom. You develop in knowledge, you get a lot of information packed in your head, but you lack wisdom. You say, what's the difference? Wisdom is the proper application of what you know. So not a problem with reading Christian books, but I think some people should read fewer Christian books. I say that I've said this many times in marriage counseling. I think there's some Christians that read too many books on marriage. And they create in their head this like super idealistic, like pie in the sky, can never reach, like super depressing, I suck kind of view of marriage. And it's just like, I, I don't know how I can ever get there. And then what happens is because they've never developed the ability to just thoughtfully and wisely and prayerfully think through the challenge that they're in and seek out a solution, they're always like pulling, what did, what did Dr. Dobson say? Oh, that last sermon I listened to, what, what did it say? What am I supposed to do next? It's awkward, and it's unnatural. So this is just the, kind of, the, these are all extremes, by the way. I mean, there's positives to each of these, but these are extremes. The textbook parent reads every new parent book and runs the place. Then there's the social scientist. The social scientist parent is probably a parent that studied psychology or social work or social sciences in university. Sorry. They have a BSW or an MSW or they're a social worker or they're a therapist. And they live in that field so much that that is their primary source of truth to parent their child. And the problem is that many of those theories are either humanistic unbiblical, or just insufficient without scriptural truth to balance them out in order to raise your kids. So you got the parent that's like struggling with discipline and they go to the social scientist parent in their small group and like, well, this is what, my, this is what you're supposed to do. And they start giving advice about discipline that's not biblical, right? It, it often relates to like human rights or self-esteem theory or a lack of discipline or letting people kind of figure it out by themselves or these kinds of things that they're not biblical, but they're the social scientist parent, and they're experts because they have a degree from a secular school on it. Now, we can learn from, uh, the, from social scientists, but we need to be careful not to use their findings as our primary source of truth. The third one is the athletic parent. This is the parent who their primary goal for their child is fitness and winning. No offense to those of you who have awesome athletes for kids like Sarah Moore, okay? But this is, again, an extreme, right? 
where their primary goal, they're thinking, what do I, what do I want, want my kid to be at 20? Oh, I want him to be in the NHL. Or I want him to be in the NBA. I want him to just be, you know, win all these awards. And that's actually what's on their mind more often than anything else. And it leaks through to their children. And so the child grows thinking, well, what my parent primarily wants of me is to be a winner. And that's defined on how I perform on the court or the ice rink or the badminton court or whatever it might be. And here's the problem with athletics. Athletics is not innately wrong. Like it's, you're, you're, you're competing. Um, but because it's not innately wrong, it can easily become an idol in so many Christians' lives because you look at it, it's like, well, how can that be wrong? You're getting good exercise. I mean, aren't we stewards of our body? It's good teamwork. You get to, you're, you, you are, you have an athletic build or whatever it might be. And you can, I, I can think of no wrongs here. But the problem is we know how, how much of a black hole athletics can become in our culture. It just sucks people in and their, their, their identity is defined by it. Then we have the academic parent. Okay. The academic parent is going to ask, 10 times, what were your grades? 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 For every time they ask, how are you doing with Jesus? The academic parent is desperate to, to produce a child that does well in school. And so there's a lot of emphasis on succeeding. There's a lot of checking of the report card. There's a lot of awards given, maybe monetary awards. If you meet certain GPA in your school or class or university courses, this is the parent who has no problem with your kids skipping church, youth group, summer camp, you know, to cram that extra course in. Now, academics, okay, guys, I have like nine years of post-secondary education. I doubt very many of you in the room have that much. So I say that not to brag, but to say this, I'm allowed to criticize this. I'm allowed to criticize this. And the reality is, this has become a god in our culture. And it shouldn't be. It should be a tool to steward your life better. But you have to think about it as a parent. When I think about this kid at 20, what are the messages that I'm uttering with my mouth or that are leaking through? You know what I mean by that? You've never said it, but there's that vibe. They're leaking through that my primary concern is to have the A-plus student. So we have that in our, uh, in our list of consideration. Then we have the peer parent. Okay, the peer parent is the parent that just wants to be their kid's best friend. I want to be your best friend. So this is the parent that... How do you know you're one of these parents? Okay, you probably are wearing your kid's clothes right now. Right? Um, when your kids go out shopping, you're probably with them. You're probably in sports with your kids or them with you. They're like your best friend. Maybe they even call you by, their, by your first name. I don't know. Probably not. But the peer parent is the parent that is always like this. They never rise above they never exercise authority. They never make demands of, it's very much of a even Stephen kind of relationship where you're just kind of buds with your kids. Now, I'm a big advocate of being friendly and friends with your kids, but somehow you also have to maintain prior to them becoming adults, a clear understanding in their mind that you are 
ordained by God, positioned by God to be in a position of authority over them. Then we have the absent parent. Again, these are dominant parenting styles. The absent parent is the raise yourself, kid, because I did. Raise yourself, kid, because I did. This is something I have to be hyper-conscious of in my own parenting style because I raised myself. So when I'm with my kids, I have no problem in like pushing them forward, pushing them forward. You know, get a job, get out there, get, get, get life moving on because I did that. And that can be good, but it can also be bad where your child feels that you are literally absent from their lives. That's a problem. Then we have the protective parent. The protective parent is the parent that fights all their children's fights, maybe even picks their children's friends, and is generally pretty lax on any discipline toward their own child. Now, this often stems from experiences in our lives. Maybe we were, maybe we were bullied growing up, or maybe we have a kid that's a nerd or that's socially awkward. And instead of being proactive in terms of helping them to understand how to present themselves to people, how to respond to challenges in life, how to respond to bullies at school, we're just in there, you know, like the mama bear, tough guy dad, and we're always like defending and and calling everybody out. And little Johnny or Sally is like behind us, kind of sticking their tongue out uh, from behind our backs. Um, This is the parent that smothers their child and doesn't allow their children to grow up. Extreme examples of this. I've met adults, like people that are pushing 30, who still have their parents' name on their bank account, who still you know, co-sign for their mortgage, legally own their car. They've never cut the, the what do they call them? Umbilical cord? I was going to say apron strings, but that's okay too. Um, they've never cut the cord. Um, between uh, them and their child and just release them into uh, adulthood, which is painful. It is painful, but it's necessary. Um, The next one on the list I wrote down is the facilitating parent. Okay, so the facilitating parent is the parent that says, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't date her. You shouldn't go there. You shouldn't say that. But yeah, I'll pay for it. Yeah, I'll drive you there. And yeah, I'll help you do it. So it's it's the parent that says, well, I don't want you to do this, but they encourage their kid to do kids to do it. I remember many years ago having a parent come to me and they're like, I got a problem. My kids are alcoholics. They're drinking all my beer and everything else. I'm like, where do they get the beer from? Well, I give it to them. <laughs> Well, stop giving it to them. Oh, I couldn't do that. Like, literally, I couldn't do that. Like, well, then I got nothing for you. Um, my kid's dating an unbeliever. Oh, really? And they're a believer. Yeah, they profess to be a believer. They're dating an unbeliever. Okay. How is it that your 15-year-old is dating an unbeliever? Well, they're hanging out at their house. They're going away with them. They're, how are they getting there? Well, I'm dropping them off. I'm driving them there, or they're, I'm letting them dr- use the car. 
Or this way, they don't have a job. How are they paying for this? Well, I give them money. And you have that kind of, we, sometimes we're, we do that. We give mixed messages. I don't want you doing this, but in, in a moment of weakness or we feel bad for the kid or whatever, we actually facilitate with our resources a lifestyle that's wrong. It's like the parent that says, oh, my kid's now engaged to an unbeliever. They're, they're getting married. Who's paying for the wedding? Well, we are. Well, don't. Right? Why would you do that? Don't accommodate evil. So there might be more, but these are ones that came to my mind when I just kind of thought through parents that I met over the years. And all of these get a big X. So what is the kind of parenting that we want to move toward? Very simple. A discipling parent. I really believe this is what it all boils down to, folks. If you're going to be a Christian parent, what are you doing? At the end of the day, your 13 to 20 goal should be, I want my child to passionately follow Jesus. That's what dominates my thinking. That's what dominates my language. That's what dominates my prayers. Yeah, I, I want them to be good on the court. Yeah, it'd be nice if they did well at school. I want them to have friends. But you know what? Those are all secondary to me. Those are all secondary to me. I want my child to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So here's what I, here's what I need you to be thinking about. I'm not going to ask for a response. I need you to be thinking about whether this is actually true of you. Because we're in a church building now, and it's easy to say, oh yeah, that's what I want. But I want you to actually think about it. When you picture in your mind your child at 20, they've made it through their teen years, are you actually committed above everything else for them to become a follower of Jesus Christ? Now, you know, the Bible talks much about this. Proverbs 22, 6, do you know it? It's, it's a proverb, it's not a promise. Train up a child. And the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart. It's not a promise. It's not like every parent that's ever done the right thing has produced the ultimate believer. But it is a proverb. Generally speaking, that's what happens. You train him up, and when, these old, when they're older, they do not depart from what you've taught them. Generally speaking. All right? So proverbs are, they're not fortune cookies, but they're not promises either. They're general observations about life. And generally speaking... When you train up your child to follow the Lord, generally speaking, they follow the Lord. Generally speaking, if you're lukewarm, generally speaking, you end up with a lukewarm kid, so forth and so on. This is generally how it works. Deuteronomy 11. Um, Deuteronomy had a couple occasions. You know, those whole emphasis on the law of the Lord, like get it on the gates, get it in your homes, talk about it on the way. Heavy emphasis on integrating faith with family life from beginning to end. Back in the Torah law. Very important. And, um, of course, there's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, which talks about a father's role not to exas- uh, exacerbate their child, but to raise them up in the Lord. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. The scriptures emphasize over and over again that... A Christian family 
is a family with God at the center of it all. That's a Christian family. But we live in a culture where it's kind of easy to be a Christian. So we get distracted. You know what it's like. We always take what we have for granted, and we focus on what we don't have. We chase down all these other things. But the time will come, in fact, I would say the days are upon us now, where it is becoming increasingly difficult to be a really committed believer. And I think it's going to get worse. Maybe some of you have been following a good friend of mine, pastors of church in Oshawa, Calvary Baptist, Rick Baker. And um, they disciplined and, and uh, uh, removed from membership a woman who was living uh, in a lesbian lifestyle. And now, boom, media's on them. You can read about it in the Toronto Star. They got this legal dude involved. He's trying to remove charitable status from all churches that don't affirm it. Okay, check this out. If they remove our legal, our charitable status as a church, I'm calculating it will cost our entire church family a half a million dollars a year. So all of the money that collectively you write off in your taxes, that's about 350000 I estimate. Gone. No longer tax-free. The people are pastors in our church. No, no, no clerical allowances anymore. Gone. We're kind of bracing ourselves for that. But it's, it's a shift, right? It's a radical shift in our culture. Not to, not away from Christianity. We're way beyond that. Not to, well, live and let live. We're way beyond that. It's shifting to an anti-Christian. It's going to be illegal to live out your faith in certain forms in coming generations. And so the challenges that we've had, I'm looking around the room, we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the challenges that we've had, I think, will be exaggerated for the next generation. Like, our kids are not going to have it easy, and our grandkids, wow, feel sorry for them already. But we know from history past that the church has persevered and grown under challenges. So we need to do our job in, in helping, to, uh, helping our kids to be even more passionate in following Jesus than we are. Because the challenges, I think, are going to be greater. So here's some things I want you to be thinking about. Write these things down. What is your subtle bent or not so subtle bent? So as you're thinking about this list, so I'm thinking about it. What, what am I, if this isn't my goal or if this isn't dominant for me, what kind of parenting am I most likely to slide into? You got to know it. You got to speak it. Before a doctor can prescribe a solution, they determine what your disease is. You got to name it. You got to identify it. And likewise, if you're thinking about being a Christian parent, you're like, man, I, I want, I want this person to be a diehard follower of Jesus Christ. If you're there, give yourself a check mark. But if you're like, ah, I think I'm here, or I'm probably more here, or I'm here, then you need to make the necessary adjustments to move over there. Is that helpful for you guys? So I'm trying to create a mental image in your mind so that you kind of know what, what to go for. So another question would be then, is discipleship really your goal? Does discipleship line up with your preferred style? Is discipleship really my goal? Above all things, is my passion for my son that he would marry the perfect girl and have the perfect kids and live three blocks from me and have a really good job and fix my car and mow my grass and pay for my retirement and 
walk my dog and invite me over for Christmas? Or is it, you know what, I, the primary passion for my son is I want him to be an absolute sold-out follower of Jesus Christ, even if he dies at 25 in a hail of bullets in Saudi Arabia, evangelizing Muslims, or whatever it might be, right? Is that my goal? And am I driving toward that end? What is your greatest passion? And are you 100% committed to this? I think we need to be 100% committed to this if we're even going to bat like 500 in practice. So we may not be 100% in application. We're always growing in this area. I am nowhere near 100% in application. But I would like to think that I'm pretty close to 100% in terms of being absolutely committed to making disciples of Jesus Christ of my five kids. I would like to think that. So it starts here. What's your desire? What's your goal? What's your value? Are are you absolutely committed to this? Okay. You're thinking to yourself, I don't really know. Ask your kids. Now, you're not going to be able to go up to them and say, do you think I'm 100% committed to being a disciple? (laughs) But you could ask questions... Casually, don't be all weird about it and googly-eyed. <laughs> but you could you could ask questions like, um, you know, you're out with your kid. You're just, you're kind of in one of those moments where serious questions are appropriate. Like, what what do you think uh, your mom and dad want you to be like when you're 20? What are some things you're just kind of sensing that we'd really like you to grow in? And just listen to what they say. And, I mean, they might say many different things that aren't strictly Christian. Oh, we, 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 want, we know that you want us to do well at school. That's fine for them to say that. But if, as you're listening, you don't get any, oh, well, I actually think your number one goal is probably for me to follow Jesus. If you don't get something like that out of them, either your kid's a dunce, or maybe you're not doing your job. And so you don't need to fish for it, but you need to really assess. I think more Christians need to be introspective. They just need to spend maybe less time doing and more time thinking and assessing and analyzing. Where are my kids at? I wonder what they think I want from them. Could they tell you what you're looking for? So ask the question, what do you think my hopes are for you? Are you 100% committed to being a disciple-making parent?